I mentioned earlier uh, the book, the commentary that I read uh, last year. Uh, it's uh, from the Bible Speaks Today series. I don't know if you know that series. It's a very helpful series for if you're just reading through a Bible book. Uh, this one is uh, by Peter Adams. Uh, another helpful series actually, if you're looking for things in that vein, is Reading the Bible Today series, which is uh, probably even uh, simpler sort of than the Bible Speaks Today series, written by a number of Australians. Um, Peter has some books in that series as well and also uh, uh, some others as well, uh, like John Dixon and uh, Andrew Reid. But they're very really helpful uh, to help you reading through Bible, Bible books. I'm reading through Ezra and Nehemiah at the moment and enjoying one of the books from the Reading the Bible Today series. Well, let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask that as we think about these words from the end of Malachi, that you would turn our hearts toward you. And Lord, open our hearts, we pray, that we might long for the day when the sun of righteousness would rise with healing in its wings. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, Malachi is anything if not a confronting book. I'm sure you'll agree. And over the last two talks we've seen that confrontation of God with his people to show that their relationship was not going as swimmingly as they perhaps thought it was. But also I think we've seen, hopefully, God's plan to sort that out, a majestic and glorious plan fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But in this last section here, God maps out the way for his people. I mean, where do they go from here? The relationship's not in a great place. God says that he's going to come and sort things out. But what about now? What do they do in the meantime? How do they respond uh, to God's words to them through Malachi. And if you like these last uh, few verses that uh, Chris just read for us are answering that question. How can we be part of God's new creation? How can we be part of those people refined by God rather than destroyed by God? Well, the answer to that question comes in those incredible words in chapter 3, verse 6. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, God says, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. Chapter 3 ended with that terrible picture of God suddenly coming to his temple and purifying and burning away everything that was evil. But why hasn't God destroyed his people yet? The answer is because God doesn't change. The people have been rebelling for thousands of years. In truth, they've been rebelling since the time of their forefathers. They've been rebelling since the days in Egypt. But God was still patient. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. You'd think that after all the people had put God through that he might have reached the end of his tether by now. 
But he hasn't. God is still patient. Compare God's patience with our patience. So most of us, uh, I think, get frustrated when we're driving behind a person doing 10 kilometres under the speed limit. Uh, I was driving here this morning and uh, I was behind two trucks that seemed to be going 60 kilometres an hour on the highway for some reason. We got to the double lane overtaking section and you can just guess what they did. I think you know what they did. 110 all the way through the overtaking section. I remember when I, uh, when I used to live uh, in Olveston. I lived there for a year. You could drive to Woolworths in Olveston. I was not far away. You could drive to Woolworths with barely a car on the road. You know, I mean, it was a busy day if you got held up behind another car. I remember moving to Launceston. I grew up in Sydney, mind you. I used to drive in peak hour uh, to get to university. I moved from Olveston to Launceston and I remember thinking, goodness me, the traffic here is ridiculous. Just ridiculous. You know, and there's barely a car on the road there as well compared to Sydney. But when we're put to the test, our patience is so limited, isn't it? It's so hard to drive behind those trucks at 60 kilometres an hour and think, well, it doesn't matter if I'm a little bit late. In fact, sometimes in my saner or more insane moments, I'm not sure which, I sit there and I do the calculations and I think 50 kilometres under the speed limit for two kilometres works out to be however many seconds. So I know, well, it's actually not that big. So there's a bigger difference, is it really? But when people do things that we don't like, we find it so hard to accept, don't we? We find it so hard to be patient. And we can maybe forgive people once, but if they do it twice, it's very difficult for us to forgive them. If they do it more than that, sometimes it can be almost impossible. Our patience is so limited. But God's patience lasts for generations. Is it? Thousands of years. Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. It's a beautiful picture of reconciliation, isn't it? Imagine a wife whose husband has cheated on her and she writes to him and says, come back to me and I'll come back to you. Come back and I'll forgive what's in the past. We find that almost incomprehensible. And yet, that's exactly what God is proposing. A broken marriage, a broken relationship, a devastated marriage, a devastated relationship. Healed. Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. But the people say, how are we to return? Now, I don't know whether that question is there because they didn't know how, that is, they didn't know how to return to God, or it may also be that they just didn't know that they were doing anything wrong. They're saying to themselves, well, I'd like to return, but, you know, what have we done? 
against you that we need to turn away from. Whatever the case is, God shows them the way back and he does that by highlighting two things. The first thing God says that they need to do is to stop robbing him. Verse 8, will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask, here's another question, how do we rob you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. They don't know that they need to return to God because they don't know that they're robbing God. They're robbing God in their tithes and offerings. In chapter 1, they were robbing God by bringing diseased offerings. It turns out they're also robbing God by keeping back some of their tithes. So the tithe was where a person took 10% of their harvest or their flock and they gave it to God. And the, it was a concrete way of acknowledging that everything that they had was not only theirs, but it belonged to God. God had given it to them. Uh, a little while ago I preached uh, at my own church on the parable of the talents in Matthew's Gospel. Uh, you might remember that parable where there's a guy who gives a few million dollars to three servants and he gives you know, one about ten million dollars and the other five and the other one million or something like that. And I'd always... You know, two of them uh, use the money and the other one buries it in the ground. And I'd always wondered, I'd always puzzled over why Jesus is so angry with that last man, the one who gets the one talent. Why Jesus is so angry with the man who buries it in the ground? Because I always thought to myself, well, at least he didn't lose it. You know? <laughs> to me, I think that's kind of responsible. Someone gives you something you look after it. But I suddenly realised that the reason is I couldn't understand it is because we tend to think that when God gives us something, it's like a Christmas present. That is, it's a present for us to do with what we want. But actually what God gives us is less like a Christmas present and more like a, a business or a franchise. It's like Jesus giving us Jim's mowing, a Jim's Mowing franchise and coming back in a year's time and we tell him, well, I mothballed the business, I haven't done anything with it, but it's all there still to go if you want it. It doesn't make sense because the purpose of entrusting somebody with a business is so that they can do business, so that they can use it. We are kingdom franchises. And our lives and our gifts and our abilities and our opportunities are entrusted by God to us, not as Christmas presents. So we go, isn't that wonderful? Well, what a great blessing. But they're given to us so that we can invest them and make a return. When we don't invest in what God wants us to invest in, when we don't invest wisely, we rob God. That idea, I think, radically reshapes not only the answers that we come up with on how we use what we've been given, but it also reshapes the questions that we ask. So instead of asking, is this okay? Is it okay to 
buy this or to buy that, this, you know, this cup of coffee or go out for dinner that night. Instead of asking, is it okay? Is it permissible? Instead we ask, well, how can I best invest the resources that God has given me? Money, gifts, opportunities. What's the best investment? And what's useful about that question, I think, is that it balances out lots of the other concerns. It balances out things like the need for rest. So actually to drive yourself into the ground, to throw away all your money, to give away all your money so that you have nothing left to feed your family is not a wise investment. It balances those things with the need to advance the gospel with the gift and the opportunities that God has given to us. And when we don't ask that question, we don't use what God has given us wisely, we rob God. So the, ty- the type of a way of acknowledging concretely that what we have belongs to God, it's not primarily ours. But it was also a concrete way of providing for other people. It was the social welfare system, if you like, in a sense, for Israel. The tithe was intended to provide for the priests who because of their priestly service had no regular income and it was also intended to provide for the sojourner, uh, for the widow and for the fatherless, for the poor and for the disadvantaged. So to rob from those people, to keep back the tithe, was also to rob from God. So if we live live according to the uh, principle finders, keepers, losers, weepers, the schoolyard principle, then it may come as a surprise to us that keeping what we have for ourselves is actually robbing God. Uh, At the risk of being deeply political and highly contentious, but I will anyway risk that, it seems to me the large uh, large part of people's reticence to welcome asylum seekers Uh, into our country and also uh, in the issue of um, making an apology to the Aborigines for taking their land, a large part of the reason that people are reticent to do that, reluctant to do that, is because ultimately we live according to a finders, keepers, losers, weepers kind of principle. Rather than believing that everything that we have is entrusted to us by God to be used for his glory. So in the case of asylum seekers, we say, we got here first, find your own place to live. And paradoxically, I think, we say to the Aborigines, we got here second, but we took what belonged to you by force, so tough luck. You see, we live as a society, maybe not as individuals, But certainly as an Australian society, we live according to the finders, keepers, losers, weepers principle. And when we do that, we rob God. Because actually God's given to us everything that we have for his glory. Now I understand that those issues are complex and they're hard to sort out in many ways for various different reasons. But neither of those issues will progress in Australian society unless as Christians we can acknowledge that our country and our land doesn't belong to us, it belongs to God.
And if we could acknowledge that as Christians, I think we can set a better tone for those issues being addressed in our society. God invites the people in Malachi's day to test him in this because they're afraid of what might happen if they do it. And we're afraid as well, often aren't we? What if I give up what I have for God? What if we let those people into our country? What will that mean? But God says, test me in this and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Poverty is not always a curse in the Bible. That is a curse from God because of sin. And wealth isn't always a blessing from God because of our wonderful obedience. But in this case it was. In the case of the people in Malachi's day, it was a curse from God because of their sin. And God says, test me, trust me, that if you live according to my principles, I'll look after you. And the curse that was on them at that time would be lifted. The the pests and the crops would disappear, the vines would stop dropping their fruit on the ground. God was warning them so that they would return to him. And God invites us to trust him that if we do what he desires, that he'll look after us. So how do they return to God? First, they need to stop robbing God. Second, they need to stop saying that it's futile to serve God. Verse 13, you've said harsh things against me, says the Lord, yet you ask another question, what have we said against you? You have said it's futile to serve God. What did we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper and even those who challenge God escape. The people were all saying that there's no point in serving God. It's the arrogant who seem to be blessed. It's the evildoers who seem to prosper. And even the people who challenge God seem to escape. They looked around and they saw the world around them and they thought, well, what a waste of time following God. We don't seem to get anything out of it. It's such an easy pattern to fall into, isn't it? The atheists seem to be going all right and we put in this hard work. We sacrifice all this stuff to follow Christ and where does it get us? It doesn't get us anywhere. I was listening to a talk the other day uh, by a friend who's talking about uh, a situation in ministry where someone in his church came up to him and said, I'm leaving the church. I don't want to be a Christian anymore. Uh, I became a Christian because I thought God would give me peace and I've not got it. So I'm leaving the church. And this person, this minister said, well that means that you weren't worshipping God but you were worshipping peace, weren't you? What's the point? Everybody else seems to have peace. And here I am following God and my life is so difficult. I suspect those thoughts and those words will become increasingly common 
as persecution becomes increasingly common in our, in our country uh, and as Christianity in Australia is increasingly marginalised. I hold out very little hope uh, for my generation. Uh, I think that within my generation, within my lifetime, maybe we'll see Christians in prison again in Australia. Who knows? But the odds aren't good, I don't think. And as it becomes increasingly costly to follow Jesus, it will become more and more tempting to give up following Jesus. But what's so difficult about Malachi is that he isn't talking about people who give up on God entirely, who throw up their hands and say, well, I don't want to be a Christian anymore. I'm over it. I'm over Christianity. He's actually talking about people who stick with it but give up in their heart. I remember I used to play for a footy team uh, in Geelong and we were the whipping boys of the competition. Uh, you know, we were the whipping boys of the, the worst competition in uh, that region, uh, in the worst division as well. And you know, it's hard when you're 100 points down at uh, half time to keep putting your uh, heart and soul into it, isn't it? But people don't walk off the field, do they? Someone always turns up for the second half, still running around, still kicking the football, still taking marks, still making tackles. But no one's really playing anymore, are they? Everybody's given up. They're still playing football, but their heart's not in it. And that's what it was like in Malachi's day. And it's so easy for us to find ourselves in the same position, isn't it? We don't become atheists. We don't say, had enough, going home, still turn up to church, still on the morning tea roster, still put money in the collection, maybe still pray before dinner and read the Bible at night. But inside we've given up on serving God because it's too unrewarding. We never say, well, what's the point? But our hearts and our actions speak louder than our words. Well, if you're saying that, God says, stop saying that and turn back to him. God invites us to test him again, verse 17. They will be mine, says the Lord, in the day when I make my, them my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And here's the promise. And again you will see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. One day, you might not see it now, but one day you'll see it. One day the distinction between the righteous and the wicked will be, will be made clear. One day it will be patently obvious. You know, all those sacrifices, all those costs, all those difficulties, will be shown to be 
what they were. A great service to God. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your master's happiness. To hear those words will be to put everything into perspective. God says, return to me and you'll see again the difference between the righteous and the wicked. The the message isn't earn your way back to God. Serve so that you get back in good with God. The message is give yourself to serving God and see which is better. Dare to give God your best and to see that it's a better way to live. It's more satisfying to live for God because that's the way that God designed the world. Living for God is more satisfying than not living for God. It's a bit like flying Qantas is a more satisfying experience than flying Jetstar. Not because you earn frequent flyer points, but because it's a better airline. It's not a reward scheme. Returning to God is not a reward scheme. But loving and following Jesus is a more satisfying experience because that's how God designed life to be. And that's so true, that's so profoundly true, that actually it's more satisfying to suffer for the sake of the gospel than to enjoy all the treasures of Egypt, as the writer of Hebrews says about Moses. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. (laughs) Most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Because our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It never feels light and momentary, does it? It always feels long, and endless. But Paul says, no, actually, it's light and momentary and the glory. That's the endless bit. Return to me, says God, and I will return to you. You might say to yourself, well, I'd love to turn back to God, but I'm not sure that God would have me. But look at God's patience. Look at God's character. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your forefathers, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. But I still don't change. Return to me and I'll return to you. How long have the people had gone to bearing with the people? 2,000 years. And he still had them back. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's who God is. God will have you back. 
Again, that's not to say that judgment isn't coming for those who don't repent. Malachi 4 gives us that mixed picture again. The picture of that day of judgment. Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. It will be a day of judgment and terrible destruction. And yet, for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. God's mercy is not unlimited. A day will come when the opportunity to receive the mercy of God will have ended. But notice too God's amazing patience. The last glimmer of it in those last few words. He says in verse 5, See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. God says before that day he'll send a messenger, another messenger, just like Malachi, to preach repentance and to call the people to return. That messenger of the New Testament tells us is John the Baptist, dressed in Elijah's clothes, preaching Elijah's message, calling people to repentance and to flee from the wrath to come. But you know what? So remarkable is that John the Baptist preached that message 2,000 years ago and we're still waiting for the great day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, writes Peter, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Return to me and I will return to you. Let me pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you that you send us messengers to reveal our sin and to call us to repentance. And Lord, all of us know how deeply entrenched sin is in our hearts and our lives. And Lord, today you've exposed that again. And so Lord, today again we come to you with empty hands and plead that you'd forgive us through Jesus Christ. That you would crucify us with Christ and raise us up with him. 
that you would hurl our iniquities into the depths of the sea and that you would wash us clean and purify us from all unrighteousness. Lord, thank you that your patience is so great and your love so astounding that we know that you will answer our prayer through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.